Uh, so, Father, we're here. Um, and uh, there's testimonies in every section, on every row, about how you've moved. You've seen you move the mountains. Uh, some of us come in here facing exactly that. Um, we're looking at Everest and going, God, if you don't, if you don't do something, man, it's not going to make it. Uh, I'm not going to make it. Some of us, God, come in here limping, carrying stuff that we're barely holding on to. And, uh, Lord, we need you to make a way where there is no way. Uh, but, Lord, what we know is that you've done it once. Uh, you've moved mountains. You've parted waters. And so we're asking, God, that you would do it again. Um, th that all falls under this one prayer. God, don't let us be the same. Our circumstances may not change. Our situations may not shift a touch. But God, don't let us be the same. Would you speak to us from your word? And may the, the word that goes forth be living and active and, and um, at us and, and on us. And it may go to work inside of us because that's what we need. So we put all of that in your hands now and ask that you, by your spirit, would bring clarity and power to bear on our lives so that we look like the kingdom citizens and family members that you have said we are. Just don't let us be the same. It's in your hands now, Father. Go to work for Jesus' sake and for his kingdom's sake among us. And everybody said... Amen and amen. So today, uh, we are going to uh, finish up, as I said, this series, uh, Go Live, uh, the, the, the banner under which we've walked these past several weeks. Um, and the idea is that you and I have a life that we've been called by God to live. It's not a religious moment or something that we exist in just in a little portion, but we have a, a life that we've been called to live. And that life that we've been called to live also gets lived not only in this room or in rooms in other parts of this facility, not inside of these walls, but also it gets lived other places. So we get to go live. That, that's, that's true of us. And it's what it is true of the calling uh, that, that God has given us. So uh, in light of that, we've we put all of this under this one statement that we as a church are kind of, we are called to make apprentices to Jesus Christ who live, don't forget that part, who live, that's what God's called us to do, live, to pursue God, love well, and serve the world. That's um, the three marching orders, if you will, that we do that. We, we pursue God, we're after him, and in that pursuit, he changes us. We love well, um, not only those here, but also those around us, and then we serve the world because the world has plenty of those who take from it. We are looking to be those who give to it. We serve the world. So um, uh, that, that is, um, we haven't made much hay of that as, as much as we have tried to over the past several weeks uh, talk about who God has called us to be uniquely. Like how does that shape us uniquely? And we've talked about kind of the DNA of, of who we are as a church. And so um, the first thing that we looked at was gospel transformation that you and I, because Jesus has died in our place and for our sins, and he has rose again to give us life and freedom. You and I are changed by our belief in that. And the deeper we go into that, the more we are changed. And we're going to pick that theme up back today. 
The second part of our DNA is that we are um, saturated with the scriptures, that we are soaked in, steeped in, however you want to say it, we are saturated with the scriptures. It marks us. And whenever the world comes along and spiritual warfare happens and anything else that goes on in our lives, whenever that squeezes us in any way, we find that the Bible flows out of us. Uh, A few weeks ago, we talked about neighbors are not nouns. They're not people who live next door with yippee dogs and broken fences and grass that's too high. Some of you are like, that's not my neighbor. That may be because it's you, but hey, different thing altogether. (laughs) Neighbor is not a noun, it's a verb. It's what you and I get the opportunity to do. We make neighbors of anybody uh, that we choose to. That's, That's the deal. And so we get to love our neighbor, and we're not talking about nouns. We get to neighbor someone. It's a verb. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at church as family. We're not a collection of families. We are a family because we have a common father who we can call father because of what Jesus has done for us. And then last week, disappointingly so, none of you NASA people got up and ran laps around the building, but we talked about being ready to launch. Okay, still nothing. Fine, don't worry about it. One of the guys from NASA earlier in the 8.30 service, he said, yeah, well, the, the rocket's really realistic. And I said, it's an icon, you knucklehead. Anyway, whole different conversation. Uh, but we, we, we launch people, we move people out of here because the life that we live doesn't just happen in here. The life that Jesus has given us to live is not intended to be a uh, uh, calendared uh, into one particular place in the calendar in one particular geographic location right here. God has given us, uh, we, we send people out. We are ready to launch. And we send you into Monday, and we send you into ministry. That was last week. And so today I want to talk about um, how transformation is our watchword. And if you're not familiar with that particular term, watchword is a word expressing the core um, aim, if you will, or belief of a group. So if you were to take our church family and the DNA that God has given us and the efforts that we make in ministry, the vision that we uh, uh, God has given us, to, to fulfill the mission that we are on, how, whatever leadership language you want to put to it or whatever book that, uh, that your management company made you read right now, here's the thing for us. When you boil it down, it boils down to that single word, transformation. We believe Jesus is in the business of changing people's lives and we want to experience it and we want to be a part of other people experiencing it. Who's with me on that? That section over there, you with me on that? Need more coffee? There's some in the back, okay? I know it's early. So, so uh, transformation is our watchword. And so in the book of Romans chapter 12, just a couple of statements this morning, and then we'll talk about kind of what this would look like if it took root in you and me and us. Um, chapter 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. If you're a writer in your Bible, you're a note taker in your Bible, um, that, that word or the phrase that comes out, spiritual worship, is notoriously squirmy. Like it's, it's hard to pin down. Um, maybe the best translation, spiritual worship is good. Some of you have a, a, a reasonable response or something like that. Maybe the best translation is something like your true worship or maybe even your truest worship. We present our bodies as living sacrifices and this is what is our, our truest worship. And so the way that I want to talk about this, the two statements I want to make this morning fall out of verse one and two. Um, the first statement is this, is that mercy leads to sacrifice. 
We'll, we'll look at sacrifice in just a second, but let's talk about mercy first. I urge you, it says, or I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God. Now, there's an old saying here, and in, in my Bible, it's the fifth word in the verse. I appeal to you, um, therefore. Now, the way that I grew up and the, the folks that I learned under, they said, anytime in the Bible you see a therefore, you need to stop and figure out, anybody know the saying? What it's there for. If you see it, therefore, you pause and figure out what it's there for. So when he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, he's founding everything that he's about to say, this ridiculously um, incredible claim, stunning claim. He's founding all of that upon what he has said before. What he's saying now is predicated and built upon what he has said before. What has he said before? He has put on display in the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans, the incredible mercies of God. That's what he's done. Chapter one, the righteousness of God has been revealed against all unrighteousness. So uh, our, excuse me, the wrath of God has been revealed against all unrighteousness. That's you and that's me. Uh, we have made an exchange where we have exchanged the truth of God for a lie and we've replaced him with all sorts of things and so he's handed us over to our own depravity. Chapter two. Chapter 2 goes like this. Hey, all of you people who grew up in church, religious folk, you're not out of that either. It applies to everybody here. Chapter 3, the whole world gets set up under this idea that we're all sinners and fallen short of the glory of God. So if you grew up uh, in the church or if you grew up out of the church, if you grew up near to God or if you grew up far from God, if right now you are near to God or feeling like you are far from God, guess what? We're all in the same boat. Every one of us is, is um, a sinner and we have all fallen short of the mark that God has set for us to live for his glory. But God doesn't let that stand. He looks at you and me and the situation we're in and he says, I'm going to do something about this, and I'm not going to make them earn it. It's going to be mercy. So we've got bad news. Chapter 1, 2, 3, chapter 4, the salvation that he offers to us is by faith, not by our works, not by the things that we can do. It is by faith, and that salvation also means, chapter 5, that we are at peace with God, no matter the circumstances that we have, no matter the situations that we encounter, no matter how the world is structured and the brokenness therein, we can have peace with God. Chapter 6, and that peace is not just a one-time moment where then we get levitated out of here, but we get to live for the glory of God. We get to present our bodies even, present ourselves as members of righteousness and leave that and, and, and live that way. Chapter 7, we will do so imperfectly. Anybody? Chapter 7 is where Paul says, uh, Paul says this, the things that I want to do, I don't end up doing. The things that I don't want to do, I end up doing. Does that sound familiar? Oh, that was Thursday. There you go. I mean, Paul knew it too. Chapter 8, <laughs> glorious chapter 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for all of us who are imperfect and do things we want to, don't want to do and don't do things that we want to do. There is no condemnation. And furthermore, um, we live our lives in a way that is inseparable from God. Height, depth, death, life, dark, light, good, bad, mountaintop, valley, demonic force, angelic power, nothing is going to separate us from God. Woo! Take that in. Chapter 9. The mercy that God gives us is not merited mercy. 
He has mercy on whom he has mercy. Chapter 10, Jews and Gentiles, everybody who puts their faith in Jesus can experience the salvation that he offers. Chapter 11, and that salvation is certain. He may be working some crazy things out in history, but we can be sure that he is at work to bring salvation to his people. And then he says, I urge you, I urge you, I appeal to you, therefore, by the mercies of God. That's mercy. He just loaded it up, 11 chapters worth of it. And then he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God. So um, th this came out this week, and I can't exactly remember where I saw it. Um, uh, but let me just I try to boil down all of that to, to, to a little statement here. He said this. Um, he said, you know what religion is? Religion is, oh, man, I messed up. My dad is going to kill me. Christianity that's based on mercy is, oh man, I messed up. I got to go tell my dad. You feel that? Because some of you grew up with this one right here. Some of you grew up in a church or in a family where this is the thing, I messed up, my dad is going to kill me. And glory to God if you grew up in a place where they could say, oh man, I so messed this up, I've got to go tell him. I've got to go tell my dad. What's the difference? Mercy. You know the character of your father. He's a good, good father. So um, there is a transforming power. As mercy leads to sacrifice, it's, there's a transforming power in that. And the mercy that God offers to us is stunning. I would just say it is a stunning kind of mercy. You pack in 11 chapters of display of mercy upon mercy upon mercy for messed up people like you and me. And then he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God. And then the appeal is just as stunning. There's an appeal that is for God. It's an appeal that sounds like this. Um, present your bodies, and not just, I mean, physical bodies, that is included in this, but Paul's really talking about kind of your, your life. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. So not just a one-time deal, but an ongoing sacrifice to God. It sounds a lot like Jesus. If anyone wants to follow me, let him take up his cross daily and follow me. Um, living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship or your truest Worship, this appeal to God um, only makes sense if the mercies of God to you are real. Because why would I offer my life as a living sacrifice to a God that I don't know how he's going to respond? The appeal, make your life worship unto God, a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. Make that, that only makes sense if the mercies are real. So let me ask you, are the mercies real to you? Are the mercies of God Real to you, do you understand that there is nothing in your life that has come to you except by mercy? Have you warranted anything that God has given you? Have you merited anything that God has blessed you with? This mercy is displayed most clearly in how he treats us because of Jesus. That he has died for our sin and in our place. 
and rose again to give us life and freedom. And when we put our trust in Christ, he forgives us. He gives us that life and freedom and he sets us on a new course. He gives us a new kind of life. There is no better place to understand the mercies of God than Jesus himself. The appeal only makes sense if the mercies of God to you are very real. It means this appeal to um, present your bodies as this living sacrifice. It means that we are committed to this, to, to consecrating ourselves, to setting ourselves apart, holy and acceptable, it says, so that the entirety of my life, the entirety of your life looks like worship. And there's no place that's untouched by it, and there's no place that's untouchable by it. Um, there's no closeted off, walled off space where you're like, hey, God, this is my part, not yours. Or, God, I don't want you to see in here. Sometimes it works both ways. But the way then that I love my wife is worship unto God based on his mercy. It postures me, his mercy postures me in worship in regards to my marriage. The way that I parent my kids. Um, it is a mercy to me that I have kids and that they've survived as long as they have. But I also, it is a worship unto God by the way that I raise them. The way that you go to work, the way that you relate to the folks around you, the way that you uh, uh, vacation this week as you hit spring break or whatever it is, it is mercy that postures you in worship so that nothing is untouched and nothing is untouchable. <clears throat> it is true worship. And that, that is a Stunning. I think it's a stunning appeal. As stunning as the mercies of God are, it is a stunning appeal. Okay, so that leads then to verse 2. Don't be conformed. If mercy leads to sacrifice, what do we do with that? Verse 2, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern, or some of you have approved, what is the will of God, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So if mercy leads to sacrifice, then what happens is sacrifice then leads to transformation. As I present myself... A living sacrifice to God. God goes at work. God goes to work in me to change me. And so when we talk about transformation as our watchword, as the, the, the focus, if you will, or the, the one word expressing the core aim of who we are, sacrifice leads to transformation. And what we're talking about is genuine change from the inside out. Paul points to this two ways. He says, first of all, I, um, I want you to don't be conformed, be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind, not the renewing of your body or your skin tone or whatever, not anything external that you can see, but the renewing of your mind, the way that you think changes the way that you feel about the, li uh, the life that you have been given to live and the things you get to do. And the way that you feel um, changes the way that you act and the way that you act changes the relationships that you're in. And so you have all these kind of concentric circles. Where does Paul start? He starts on the inside. It is genuine change, not from the outside in, conformity to some external pressure or even an internal temptation. It's not that. It is genuine change from the inside out. That's one way he talks about it, the renewing of the mind. But secondly, he uses a word there, don't be conformed, but be transformed. Anybody Greek and know Greek enough to guess what the, what the word is that he uses for be transformed? Anybody want to take a run at this? metamorphosis now if you're thinking back wait a minute i've heard that before ninth grade biology class yeah that's right caterpillar chrysalis butterfly and that process is called metamorphosis 
Now, nobody thinks to themselves, hey, caterpillar, chrysalis, really nice caterpillar. You don't see a monarch floating around and you think to yourself, oh, that is a beautiful caterpillar. What do you think? That is an incredible butterfly. There is something so substantial and something so real that when that caterpillar gets changed from the inside out, it becomes something else. It sounds a lot like if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone by caterpillar. The new has come. Hello, butterfly. Metamorphosis. Genuine change from the inside out. There's a couple of, uh, of temptations that come along with this. Um, that people push back against and, and they say, okay, genuine change from there. Okay, 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 okay. I get it. Don't be conformed, be transformed. Um, genuinely, uh, excuse me, generally speaking, a couple of things happen. Number one, people say something like this. Um, I, I want to try to live with both. Like I got one foot and be conformed and another foot and be transformed. Now, if you've been, I mean, around longer than about five seconds, how well does that work for people who try to straddle the fence? It doesn't work well at all. Rodeo's in town. It's like climbing on a bull and not holding on to the rope. How long are you going to last? It will be the absolute shortest 0.1 seconds of your entire life, right? You just won't make it. And indeed, if you're in here and you're thinking, man, I can be conformed to this world and transformed. No, you cannot. Those two kingdoms do not operate like that. You're all in on one or the other. So you, you can't do that. So a, a kind of a second layer of that, and a more, in my opinion, a more deceptive layer of that is to say, okay, well, I know that I can't. Um, I mean, you're telling me that I can't do conformity to the world and transformation. Can't straddle the fence here. So what I want to do then is just define conformity to the world as transformation. That doesn't work either. I mean, God's not going to let that slide. You just undo the fence altogether and throw it all in the same pot. Um, I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, it it um, blew up, at least in my world this week. Some of you don't care a lick about this or even heard about it, but it blew up in my world this week. Emails and um, articles sent to me and questions people ask. And so, yeah, a particular denomination in our, in our country had a, had a fairly big meeting a couple weeks ago about how they were going to um, deal with the issue of sexuality and how they were, as a, as a denomination, respond to these kind of things. And then a couple of articles came out, in particular one, um, kind of a senior statesman for this denomination, um, wrote an article and basically he said, hey, look, the Bible is full of all sorts of crazy stuff, and so we don't need to use the Bible to determine uh, what the uh, sexual ethic of Christianity should be. So, and, and people who say that, and maybe you've had this, uh, this conversation, I certainly have, but people who say that roll this out. Well, and they typically use, um, like, Genesis. Well, you know, Abraham, he had multiple wives, and so the Bible supports polygamy. And Jacob had multiple wives, so the Bible supports polygamy. And, 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 and David was an adulterer, and so the Bible talks about adultery and so forth and so on. They just kind of go through this thing. And I, I mean, it's a straw man argument, right? It's a straw man argument, and here's why. Because, um, and this is my typical response to them, it's, I say this, man, I'm really glad you're reading your Bible. Um, I want you to read it even more closely. Well, I took offense to that. Well, thank you. I, what, what happened to all of those guys? Who did it that way? Tell me, how did it turn out for Abraham? 
or Jacob, or David, or Solomon? How did it turn out for any of those guys who did it differently than how God prescribed? How did it turn out? Well, I mean, and I say this. Hey, just because the Houston Chronicle reports, just because it reports that there was a crash and somebody got hurt, doesn't mean that it celebrates that or says that that's okay. Do you think the editors of the Chronicle are sitting there going, oh man, got in a crash, all right. (laughs) No, of course not. Why would you even say that? Because just because the Bible reports something doesn't mean it condones it. A second guy, really smart fella, and he's, I mean, he really is. He's a sharp cookie. Pastors a uh, really large church in the Kansas City area. He had a big church family meeting, same issue, same denomination, and he said this. Um, he said, look, if the, if the Bible, if passages, this is the quote, if, the, if passages in the Bible harm people, then I want to really question those passages. That sounds pretty good on the surface, right? Except the Bible says about itself, it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged, somebody help me. Sword. I'm sorry, a what? You know what you do with a sword, right? You, you like get your fingernails and say, what do you do with a sword? You go to cutting and whacking. That's what a sword is for. So when, when somebody comes along and says, oh, well, you know, I, passages that really harm people, I'm like, listen, if I only have a Bible and, and, and kind of a layer behind that, if I only have a God that I can agree with, I don't think I have a God. I think I've got a mirror. So you can't straddle conformity, transform. You can't just say, oh, well, conformity, conforming is being transformed. That's not how this goes. And then there's uh, uh, another example would be, this is even a little more subtle. Uh, this, this cartoon, um, again, popped up all sorts of social media. Uh, it's from a... Um, I, I don't follow this guy on social media or anything. He's fairly provocative, you as guests, because it's the naked pastor um, is what it's called for whatever reason. Uh, but Jesus is there, if you can't read the words, Jesus is there talking to people carrying their Bibles. And it says the difference between you and me is that you use scripture to, to determine what love means and I use love to determine what the scripture means. Now that sounds good, doesn't it? That sounds wise. That's almost like, Spiritual jujitsu, like, why? You thought you were coming in one way and whoop, flip the thing. The problem with that is this. The Bible both describes for us what love is. Love is patient, love is kind, love is gentle, does not envy, and so forth. 1 Corinthians 13, for instance. But not only describes what love is, it also defines what love is. And this is love, that God sent his son to be the savior of the world. This is love, not that we love God, but that he first loved us and gave his son to be the atoning sacrifice or propitiation for our sins. So it's not like I can just pick my favorite definition of love, impose that on the Bible, and then, and then let that define all the passages, right? I have to let the Bible speak to me. I have to let the Bible critique me. I have to take the Bible at its, uh, at its face value. I can't just impose my stuff on there. I have to be open to critique from it. So this sounds really wise, but when you noodle it, you go, wait a minute. 
That, that's just simply, imp- that's putting me in the position of judging the Bible instead of letting the Bible be in the position of judging me. I, I, don't, I don't get convicted by a text that I can manipulate. I get convicted by a text that's beating the snot out of me when I go, oh man, I got to do that. So genuine change from the inside out. That's what we're talking about. The third temptation, just very briefly, again, transform, conform, or just throw it all in one pot. The, the, the other one is, is this, just quickly, that you would just settle for being a good person. And you let your life be marked by verbs. Well, I do this. I go to church. I read my Bible. I'm in Sunday school class. I, 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 I mow my neighbor's lawn. I, 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 and you have all these verbs, right? Christianity is a life to live. That is true. But it is a life based on nouns. I am and adjectives. I am redeemed. I am a son or a daughter. I am um, made righteous in the sight of God. I am a new creation and on and on and on. And it's from that that all of that comes. Don't settle for just being a good person. That's not transformation. You can sit in this room or any other room and miss transformation altogether. Don't do that. Don't settle for just being a good person. Genuine change is what Paul is calling for. It's what the Bible calls us to. Secondly, just quickly, what, how, how does this happen? Well, it says here, by the renewal of your mind, and then he goes, that by testing, you may discern, or some of you have a proof, what is the will of God, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. How do we go about achieving this, this transformation? It's this. It is this consistent, this consistent thing, that you put your yes right next to God's word. That by testing, you may discern, approve. I'm setting my yes right next to God's word. Not because it validates God's word. God's word is true whether or not I say yes to it or not. Not because it enhances God's word. Oh, good. God, now that you've got me on, my, on your team, I'm sure this is going to go better. None of that. It's just I'm in agreement. I am setting my life in line with, in agreement with what God has said and the truth of it and the authority of it. That, that is what it means Um, to experience, to live this transformed life. I am consistently setting my yes, placing my yes right next to God's word. Okay, so what would this look like? Like if this this particular watchword took root right over here in this section, all of you people, you know what it would look like? I'm glad you asked. The rest of verse 12, excuse me, chapter 12 kind of unfolds this. It starts in verse three, a a transformed self-worth. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself or herself more highly than he ought to think, but think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. I don't have to draw my self-worth from what somebody else says about me. It's good to it's good to get encouragement. It's good to get all of those things. But I don't, I don't draw my, my self-worth from that. I, in fact, I don't, even cons- I don't even judge myself. That's what it says. Don't, don't think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but think with sober judgment. I'm really clear on who I am. I messed up, had some words with my spouse or my kid or what, however you want. I'm, I'm clear-headed on who I am, but I'm not drawing my self-worth even from my performance. I'm drawing my self-worth from what God has already said about me. If that took root, you think that would change your week? If this took root in this section right here, transform resources. We won't read all of this, but just look look at verse six. Having gifts 
Because when you think about uh, when you think about resources, some of you immediately run to money. It's not just that. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts or encourages in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. If this took root in this section right here, you would be able to look out um, around and say, hey, listen, the things that I have been given by God, I'm indwelled by the Spirit of God because I'm his follower and he has given me things and I'm going to employ them out there. It's not a matter of me saying, oh, I think I'll just hold on to this. None of this stuff is mine. It came to be my mercy, by mercy, and it is going to be used as worship unto God. If this took root in this section right here, your relationships would be transformed. You would have a transformed self-worth. You would have a transformed sense of the resources that God has blessed you with, including the gifts. And you would have a, a transformed, uh, you would have transformed relationships. Um, look at verse 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Verse four, skip down to verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be haughty, but associate with the lowly. If this transformation took root in this section right here, there would be people who, who would say, hey, those people over there, they're not haughty. They associate with the lowly. If it took root, they, this transformation took root in us, there, there would be people who would say, man, I don't know what it is over there, but their competition with one another is outdoing one another and showing honor. What kind of people are they? If this transformation took root, they would say, hey, they, they love with a kind of brotherly family affection. They, they high-five when it goes good for them. They're high-fiving over there, celebrating, hugging. They jump up and fist bump and chest bump, all those things that they do because they're rejoicing with those who rejoice. And when it goes bad for them, people come in crying. People hug people because they're weeping with those who weep. That's what they do. If this transformation took root, that's what that would look like. And if this transformation took root in this section over here, it would be a changed perspective. Just briefly, verse um, uh, 17, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, and it's not always possible, so far as it depends on you, and as much as it depends on you, you do this, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it's written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. Give him something to eat. If he's thirsty, uh, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will reap burning coals, uh, heat burning coals on his head. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. If that took root in you, there would be a transformed perspective. God, I don't have to seek my own vengeance here. I don't want to have to worry about how I'm going to get back here. I'm going to trust myself to you, and I'm going to let you handle it, because you'll handle it better than I could, more fairly and justly than I ever could, and you will be able to do. So I am free then to do exactly what you said. I'm free to bless I don't have to curse. I'm free to, to um, feed those, no matter if they're in my enemy or not. I'm free to feed those or, or give drink to those who are hungry and thirsty. That, that's how we go live. If transformation is our watchword, it changes how we view ourselves, how we view the things that we have, how we view the relationships that we're in, and how we view the circumstances that we're in. It transforms all of that. 
So, so what's the ask here? Like, what do you walk out of here and do? And the answer is, I urge you, appeal to you, plead with you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, present every day your bodies as living sacrifices, holy, acceptable, pleasing. It is your spiritual worship. It is your truest worship. Commit yourself to this kind of life. Let's pray together.